The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, feeling full of hope for the rest of the year now that my manuscript, I told you I wasn't going to stop talking about it, is turned into the publisher. Yay, me. For today, listeners, I have a very interesting guest, and I know I say that all the time, but I swear, Christina Jones is an accomplished and avid hunter. Hailing from the state of New Jersey, she literally provides all the meat and fish that her family consumes. Her relationship with the food she eats and the outdoors is frankly impressive. She's a volunteer with the National Wild Turkey Federation and is also involved with Women in the Outdoors, an effort that supports other women looking to pick up outdoor hobbies. And as an outdoors woman, she is keenly aware of the changes in climate that impact the outdoor areas she loves, the game she hunts, and everything adjacent to her favorite pastime. I also just have to note that I found Christina because Angela Lark, RepublicEN.org's engagement director, was at an archery competition with her son, and I asked her to keep a lookout for any outdoorsy hunter types who might make a good guest. She connected with a woman who connected us to Christina, so you never know how your next favorite guest might come our way. If you would make a great guest or you know someone who would, hit me up. On that note, without further ado... Christina Jones. Welcome back, listeners. As promised, I'm in conversation today with Christina Jones. Christina, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chelsea. How are you? I'm great, and I'm so excited to have you here because we have not had somebody come on to talk about their experiences being a hunter, and I'm extra psyched that you are a woman who is also a hunter. So tell me how you got into hunting. Uh, well, it's kind of a funny story. So I um, did not grow up in a family who hunted. Um, I, you know, my father had hunted way before I was born, but never um, stuck with it. And we lived in suburbia in New Jersey. And um, I, um, as I got older, had friends that hunted, but nothing, you know, nobody really ever was like, hey, try this. And then I tried venison roadkill one day. Um, wait, 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 wait. Venison roadkill. Yeah. So um, we had venison roadkill for, for dinner one night. And I was like, wow, tacos, which is the way to introduce people. And I, you know, we made a joke of it. But then I was like, well, this is really good. And um, I ended up buying property in northern New Jersey. And there were plenty of deer. And there were plenty of bear. And there were plenty of turkeys. And so I kind of was thinking to myself, well, I'm not a big fan of buying meat at the food store. And there's all this meat walking around my property. And so um, I had always loved the outdoors. And I just kind of set myself on this course. I didn't have a mentor. I didn't really have anybody who could walk alongside me. Um, and I found a couple um, people and a couple of resources, um, you know, on the internet at the time, this was about 12 years ago. And that just sort of unfolded. And, and, you know, I still to this day joke that for me, it was just an excuse to sit outside in the woods and read. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I'd be out there all day. I'd finish like three books in one weekend and um, it was great. 
But then once you start to kind of realize, you know, everything that I harvest, I put on my table. Um, And then I had friends who, hey, you know, do you have extra meat to spare? I'd love to try it. Or friends who times were a little tough. Do you have any extra meat you could share? Um, And when I started to see that too, that relationship of what you can provide other people and for yourself and for your family, um, it just became, I I don't even know how to describe it, except that it was just a driving like force in my life. And then um, it's just unfolded. And here we are. Well, you called yourself um, when we were chatting before the show, an adult onset hunter. And I love that terminology or that description. I think it's so perfect. And what an interesting journey. Are there, is there a particular animal or animals that you get the most enjoyment out of hunting? Um, so obviously I think it depends on, um, look, I just want to be in the woods or fishing Mm -hmm. 365 days a year. Um, and so for me, any opportunity to be outside, I'm I'm matter of the season. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as I've progressed, um, over the last 12, 13, 14 years now as a hunter, um, you know, obviously I love deer hunting in New Jersey. We're very blessed, ironically, um, to have, you know, plenty of deer and plenty of opportunity to harvest deer. Um, and my husband is a hunter as well. And we, we love to deer hunt. I mean, I love it. I love to archery deer hunt. We deer hunt six months out of the year. And I love to also, um, kind of, give myself a little bit of a challenge and go after some bigger animals. I've caribou hunted. Um, I've bear hunted. We, we consume all of the meat that we harvest. Um, and you know, and then what happens is you really fall in love with it. And next thing you know, you have two bird dogs. You love to pheasant hunt. You love to duck hunt. You love to goose hunt. And you're just kind of like, well, if it's edible, we're hunting it. And, um, you know, if the opportunity is there, we have, I've been lucky. I've traveled across the country and, I just, you know, it's just such an amazing opportunity and to have that relationship with, you know, your food and the environment and the outdoors and, you know, your bird dog and your husband and and your friends. So I think that's really important. And it's something that we, that most people don't have, right? I have never hunted and I've never, I mean, I've like pretended to fish where, but I've never caught anything. So I have never eaten something that I have been responsible for sort of from the get-go, right? I go to the grocery store and I pick something out and I bring it home. And I think that we really miss that connection to the land and having the connection to the land helps us see the changes on the land and the things that, um, you know, might be different. I know that some migration patterns are changing because of climate change. Ducks was a big one that I know that, you know, the different, um, when weather is warmer early or colder later, it can really change those migration patterns. And then it's not just the changing of the patterns for those species, but then the things that they like to eat, <laughs> their patterns change and that becomes this chain reaction. Um, I know that you are a volunteer with the um, the National Wild Turkey Federation. How, well, first of all, do you shoot your own Thanksgiving turkey? I mean, I have to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so we, do, well, we do, but we don't. So because um, most turkey feed, most turkey hunting is done in the spring. Oh. Um, yeah. So, and we do have a fall season here in New Jersey. And so we do usually 
but um, most of my family would not be happy if I put a wild turkey on the the kitchen on the table. Unfortunately, because it's uh, not like the big yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. To, I mean, you can find a big turkey, but you're not going to find that, you know, 30 pound bird that's going to feed 15 people. Um, yeah. So I actually was not a turkey hunter when I found the NWTF and I was a little nervous that they might turn me away. And, and it's, it's kind of funny. I, um, I found the NWTF because I was looking for a way to get involved in women's programs. And to give back to women, because I, like I said, when I started hunting, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have any of that. And I had traveled to Tennessee and done a program down there for um, a women's deer, a women's, it was semi-mentored. It was not fully mentored, but, um, and I came home from that and I said, you know, I want to do something like that. We don't have anything like that in New Jersey. And so in 2014, I walked into a meeting and I said, you know, this is what I want to do. And they were like, okay, you're not leaving you know, you're not leaving. And, and our programs have evolved as hunters have evolved. And as, as times have evolved. Um, and I think, especially with COVID, you know, you talked about not having that relationship with your food and, and that was already starting to change, but the acceleration of people who probably were interested in having that relationship with their food, but didn't really have the time or didn't have like, you know, the, the access to it, you know, then all suddenly everybody's home and everybody's thinking about it and people can't get meat at the food store. And they're like, oh my gosh, how do I do this? And so we saw a huge influx of hunters and not just hunters, but people who were curious about it, people who wanted to know about it. And it's funny when you talk about the relationship with the land, can hunters go out and not worry about that kind of stuff? Absolutely. But I don't think you are a hunter for very long before you start to pay attention to um, changes in habitat and changes in, you know, water levels and changes in, like you said, migration patterns and things like that. And that is where you start to notice like, oh, like if, if we don't do something about this, what's going to happen? And, you know, I noticed it. I went caribou hunting in the Northern um, Ungava Bay territory, I think Ungava Bay territory of Quebec um, in 2015. And two years later, they shut it down and you can no longer caribou hunt there. And that is a direct relation because of the migration pattern changing. And I mean, I remember being there, we were there in September, in mid-September. And, you know, looking back at our pictures, it was bluebird skies. The water was as clear as glass. There wasn't a ripple on the water and it was like 70 degrees. And these animals that should have been in full migration were just kind of like, we equated it to being like on vacation. Yeah. They're like, we're going to hang out here a little longer. (laughs) They were just kind of walking around and not, and not in a bad way. And there was plenty of food for them, but it was, it threw off the migration. And, you know, that was kind of, I think for me, the first time I stopped and thought about how we, how we as human beings are affecting these animals, you know, and, and, and then on the flip side, I think too, people think, um, you know, hunters, if you're against hunting, if you, if you can't understand it and you can't have that conversation, that's unfortunate. 
if you would never hunt yourself, but you can see why people would want to hunt, then, you know, there's, there's a, a seat at the table to have that conversation. And what part of that conversation also entails is carrying capacity, mm-hmm. you know, for animals. And we can't just ignore the fact that, um, animals can't always control their own population any longer, you know, and, and that can happen in a very wild area. But when you live in areas like New Jersey or populated parts of, you know, like Virginia outside DC, there's just not that ability to um, self-populate and, and to control their own population or have other animals control their population for them. Oh, trust me. We have deer (laughs) where I am. You know, I'm in a very urban area. I live two miles from the border of Washington, DC, and they are so tame, right? They're not scared of humans and they're, They'll just walk down the street in front of my house. I'm an early riser. So I'll be up in the morning. I'll be like, oh, there's mom and her three babies. And they walk down and I can see they eat my hostas, right? Like they have certain plants that they eat. They're like, "Mm, salad, yum, thanks. Um, (laughs) I think that that is really, you know, all of that is super interesting to me as somebody, especially who has never hunted, but who loves the outdoors and frankly, who loves food. I've definitely eaten things that other people have um, (laughs) been responsible for, but Earlier, um, when we were talking before the show started, you mentioned that climate change isn't always a safe word in some of the circles that you um, are in. And I'm wondering if you can just elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, I think sometimes like when, when you do some, when you do different work that um, can kind of incite feelings in other people, there's hot words, right? You know, like, don't mention that. We don't want to talk about that. We're not going to, that's off topic. And I think climate change tends to be one of those words um, in the outdoor industry, in the hunting industry, in the fishing, you know, in fishing, not so much probably fishing, because I think, I think it probably affects fishing and waters most evidently, you know, you, that you just cannot deny. Um, And so I think in the hunting and trapping industry, it's kind of like a, it's a, you know, we don't talk about it. Did you just say client? No. (laughs) Or people just kind of gloss over, you know, they don't, they don't want to have that conversation. They don't want to think that anything that they're doing or not doing, um, could play into what they, what they perceive climate change to be, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, you guys are working to change that, to change that, you know, black mark on what climate change is yeah. to so many people. Um, but I think we can no longer ignore it. I, I, I mean, we can ignore it all you want, but I think what's going to happen is, you know, we're going to see species are starting to decline. It's happening, Mm -hmm. you know, or we're starting to lose and, and really, you know, deer shouldn't be walking down main street, USA bears shouldn't be up in trees in the middle of, you know, cities. And so I think we're already starting to see, you know, those effects happening, but nobody really wants to own why it's happening. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. Um, You had mentioned also that at one point, wild turkeys were almost gone in the U.S. And now the species is totally recovered. And that is something that is in part due to the advocacy and and interest of avid sports people like you and, and your peers. Yeah. So it's, you know, the NWTF was founded 
um, with primarily the, you know, obviously hunting heritage and, and that type of thing. But, you know, their mission was to to create a safe environment and to build the population of wild turkeys across the country. And there is and 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 I would I feel very comfortable saying this, that that it is the number one success story for reintroduction of a species in the United States of America across the board. We are still you know, we are still sharing turkeys amongst borders, right? So, you know, Maine is still shipping turkeys to other states and and we're still growing populations across the country and doing that kind of work. But at the same time, in the last four years, it's become abundantly clear that those healthy populations are now starting to decline and not just in certain pockets. It's happening all over the country. Um, I can think of at least, you know, 10 states that have launched or are about to launch, um, you know, wild turkey studies to study what is going on. Why is there this population decrease all of a sudden when we went from having this abundant population that almost was too abundant um, yeah. which I think happens and, and, mm-hmm. and that's normal, but we were attempting to kind of control those numbers through hunting. And now we are now seeing that hunting, whoa, we have to back up. We can't overhunt because now they're in decline. And so I think we probably all know that climate change is, you know, a part of that. And I think we probably call it something different. They're probably calling it something different, um, and they're just not going to label it that way. But I think that it's probably pretty clear to the folks who are on the ground doing the work, the biologists, the technicians, that kind of thing, um, that, you know, climate change is affecting that. And and I don't know how you could deny it. Um, and I'm very curious to see, you know, what the outcome of a lot of these studies are. So they're doing some really cool thing. Like they're putting like backpacks on little, ba- little, little tracking backpacks. I always envision like, you know, little backpack walking around on a turkey. But so they're backpacking a lot of the hens. Um, they're doing tele- telemetry studies, um, gobbling studies. I mean, there's just so much stuff going on across the country that I'm so curious to see. And it's great to see the money that we raise going to these kinds of things. Um, and I'm curious to see what happens in the next three years as these studies start to, um, you know, really produce information and data and see what happens and see what the biologists and the scientists say, you know, is yeah. the cause. Yeah. Have you ever gone to Maine for the moose hunt? <laughs> I have not. We have, my husband and I, I've been putting in, um, since I started, since I started hunting in 2011. Um, but neither of us have been chosen yet. So So I'm from Maine. And so definitely growing up, that was something that my friends would do with their parents that were hunters. And, um, you know, it's just, as you know, that very short season, um, to hunt. And, and I wonder, you know, as you were talking on, I was thinking, I wonder if that's a season that, you know, it's one week out of the year when will that season have to change because either things aren't cold enough soon enough or whatever the conditions, I don't know how they determine that that week is the right week to do it, but yeah, there is and a lot of science that goes into these decisions. There is. And, and I will tell you, so there is already issues with moose populations in Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, and, and it's all tick based. Well, um, yeah, you know, and that's what they're thinking that it's, yeah. you know, but at the same time, well, then where does, you know, climate yeah. plays into and all climate of that. plays a role in 
tick yeah. populations for sure, for sure. Yeah. Lyme disease so. is one of the worst um, <laughs> of all the things that that climate change is making worse. Lyme disease, allergies. I'm like, come on, and you're gonna kill our coffee crops and wine crop, uh, grape crops too. Great. <laughs> what kind of world are we gonna be left in? <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is all really fascinating. If there is a listener who is hunting curious, um, what do you recommend they do as kind of a first step? So, I, you know, woman, man, child, what, whatever you yeah. are, if you are interested in, in in learning to hunt or just learning about hunting, um, no matter where you are in, in the United States or in the world, really, um, just get on the internet and Google, look up organizations like the NWTF and, you know, like Trout Unlimited and Ducks Unlimited and, you know, Delta Waterfowl. And there are so many conservation organizations out there. Look up those, look up those organizations and see if they're doing any kind of um, workshops or, um, you know, we actually, our chapter, our, we have a women in the outdoors chapter. We do virtual workshops for people. Um, we do all sorts of stuff virtually too. Um, and reach out to the local chapters. If that doesn't work for you, there are a gazillion other um, places that you can go to like backcountry hunters and anglers who can probably put you in touch with a person, a real live person who will have those conversations with you and walk through, you know, what it's like, because the other thing too is hunting is very specific to where you are. And, um, you know, you want to find someone who's in your area that's going to be able to really talk to you about, you know, what species you can hunt there, what, you know, what type of property and all that kind of stuff. And especially if you're listening to this type of a podcast, and I think, you know, you're a little bit more, um, conscious about, you know, your carbon footprint and what you're doing for the environment. Um, you know, just keep an eye out for different programs, different workshops. You know, I know a lot of um, the state agencies and even some of the federal agencies will host um, those kinds of things and just start reading. I mean, that's what I did. I just started reading about it. I just started watching YouTube videos. Um, there's so much information out there, so many podcasts and just kind of, you know, put your foot in it and don't be afraid. I mean, you, you have to start somewhere. Yeah. I started with deer. Some people start with smaller animals like squirrel um, or just start with archery or just start with, you know, shooting, depending on what kind of, um, you know, hunting you want to do. And just don't be afraid. You know, I, we I, I said it today. I have not bought meat at the food store in I don't know. I mean, I bought a corned beef, okay, which I could have done a corned beef venison. But, um, you know, we don't buy meat at the food store. We don't buy fish at the food store. Everything that we harvest gets eaten. Um, whether it's by us or it's by somebody else. And, you know, it is in, in, in times like these, I don't have to worry about, it. I don't have to worry about, you know, where our food, where our proteins are going to come from yeah. um, and we can help others. And that's an amazing thing too. So, um, you know, just get out there and try it. And it's not for everybody. And you, you may become a world champion bird watcher from it yeah. and that's fine. Yeah. You know, that's fine. <laughs> I, I know more about bird watching now than I thought I ever would. So, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just a byproduct of it, but. Well, your it. passion is really infectious. You have me thinking, well, gosh, maybe I need to go and uh, do a little more inquiry myself. So I appreciate you sharing all your experiences and um, insights. And I look forward to catching up again sometime. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bryce, I have come up for air. Welcome back. Welcome <laughs> back from not the dead, 
because you're most certainly alive and kicking trying to get that manuscript done. Congratulations. A massive weight, I'm sure. I can't even begin to describe probably what you're feeling because it. I will never go there in terms of finishing a book. Um, yeah, it's like a little bit surreal over the weekend. I definitely had some moments where I was like, I should be working. And then I was like, or I can just lay on the couch and do nothing, which is what I tried to do. Let me just say, Um, if that book is never published, which I know it will, but if, if I wrote and did what you did and it was never saw the light of day again, I'd still feel this immense sense of accomplishment, which I hope you do, but I know it's going to be even better once it is published and out and available for purchase, but we're all so proud of you. Thank you. It was, I'm proud of myself. Like it's, it was a hard endeavor. I will say um, writing nonfiction is a lot harder than writing fiction because in fiction, you can just make it up and you can say what you want and you don't have to have sources or um, prove that what you're trying to get at is accurate. So yeah, there was a lot of like the little nitty gritty parts um, that were, I found a little bit harder with nonfiction, but it was fun. And I, I'm already kind of thinking what could my next um, project be. So, oh. hey. I know we'll spend and devote more time once, you know, your book is, you know, out and or getting ready to come out, promote the heck out of it and everything like that. But what was your favorite? What was your least favorite part? Uh, you know, in a few short words. What, I mean, what did you like the best? What didn't you like? The, I mean, what was the hardest? Part? I mean, I think that what I liked the best was to mm-hmm. just see. So for listeners that are just tuning in for the first time. I wrote a book (laughs) and I just delivered the manuscript to my editor and it is on the history of the politics of climate change. And I would say just seeing how far back the efforts go Mm -hmm. to do something like LBJ was the first president to get briefed on climate change. And so really to just sort of see the ebb and flow, see how, um, how there was just so much interest in the 70s and the 80s, but people were being cautious. They didn't know what the right thing to do was. And so I found that part really interesting. I would say that was my favorite. And my least favorite, um, well, you know, aside from the formatting woes that I already regaled you, uh, the team members with on our last conference call, I would say um, it was just hard sometimes to read about some of those like close calls where we almost, you know, were able to get climate change legislation done. And then to see how it didn't happen was, you know, kind of frustrating as somebody who's been in this game for a long time. And especially mm-hmm. to see the breakdown in bipartisanship, which, um, you know, in the 80s, very bipartisan interest in the issue. And, you know, even in the 90s, but the 90s was kind of when the um, merchants of doubt started to really mm-hmm. heavily fund efforts against climate change. So we un- we know all about those merchants of doubt here mm-hmm. at republician.org. <laughs> well, congratulations again. I, we will talk a lot more about it as, you know, we get closer as, you know, you go through this yeah. you know internal process to get it ready for publication, because I know there's what more steps, several, several steps to getting it ready yes. to that point. I mean, target publication is August of next year. So a lot of things are going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, the, the heavy, heavy part is done. The heavy, heavy lifting yes, is done. That's so. right. That's right. Well, uh, to get back on to at least this script, the podcast yes. script, yes. Um, Christina Jones was awesome. That was she a was very so 
great. Yeah. yeah. That was a great idea that Angela and lead that you got from our engagement director, Angela Lark, in the yeah. idea for Christina. So yeah. I thought it was really interesting stuff. Yeah. I thought she was really fun to talk to. She, you know, her whole thing about um, having that personal relationship with the food that she was putting on the table. Mm -hmm. um, I found that really impressive. And, you know, as somebody who likes the outdoors, but is not a hunter or an angler, I don't know. I just, I could appreciate the Zen, what she was, when she was talking about mm -hmm. how it could be kind of Zen mm -hmm. when you're sitting and you're waiting and stuff. I could really see that. And you're not on your phone, right? You're not, yep. um, you're just settling in and actually kind of trying to disappear, right? So trying to be one <laughs> with yeah. nature. And that just appealed to the side of me that really appreciates the outdoors. So thank you, Christina, so much for um, being on our show. And hey, listeners, if you are hunter, angler, outdoor enthusiast, you're noting um, changes in climate and are concerned, maybe you're part of a local club like Christina um, does some volunteer work with the um, National Wild Turkey Association or Federation, but she also is part of a local women's group that is F, uh, focused on helping women get access to the outdoors. And so anything like that, that you do that you think has some sort of connection, hit us up, let us know. We're always looking for new voices. Yes, we are. And some new folks that have decided to stand with us. We thank them. We appreciate them as well as many, many others that are standing with us and have signed up in just the last week. A couple new ones to shout out Whitney W in Florida, David B in Texas, Selvin R in California, Sandra R in Louisiana, and Larry A in Alaska. Boy, we're covering the map there this week with new members signing up to stand with us at republicn.org forward slash join. It takes mere seconds. We make this pitch. We make the plea every single week, but we would love for you to do so if you aren't already, Chelsea. That's right. And, um, you know, it's good content. We, I have been in the spring cleaning mode of unsubscribing <laughs> from things that I just automatically delete. And um, so I am somebody that really appreciates um, the thoughtfulness that goes behind a message. And, you know, I'm not sending mess. We don't send messages to our members every day. Everything has a purpose. So Fridays, you know, you're going to get weekend review from me, just summarizing the work the week's events um, as they relate to climate and um, eco right leadership and climate. And, you know, Angela sends a poll once a month and um, we announce our webinars and things like that, but we're not having webinars every day. So this no. is not like a daily drip email that you're going to get and be like, Oh, why are they reaching out to me again? So, uh, and we never have a one day sale ever. Just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good one. That's a good one. Um, all right. So we can let you sleep, eat, breathe, relax a little bit after last week. Real quick. Tell us what's ahead next week here on the Eco Rights Speaks. Yeah. So sort of connected to this theme that um, we were just saying about the outdoors. And I only say that because these folks are from Montana, and I feel like if I lived in Montana, I would just be outside all the time. Um, we have three guests that are um, come from, you know, along the spectrum. One of them are our own um, Eco Right Leadership Council member, Kyle McIntyre. And these three, there's a progressive from CCL, there's Kyle, and then there's an ACC, American Conservation Coalition member. They all live in Utah, and they, Utah, Montana, they all live in Montana, and they have been jointly writing 
op-eds and LTEs and placing them in small papers throughout Montana. Mm -hmm. And so we're just going to talk about their partnership, how they came together, even though they don't always agree on everything and every approach, they have been able to hone in on the way that they do agree and really amplify that message. And so we're just going to talk a little bit about that, Price. Well, I'm excited to hear from them. We all are excited to hear from them next week, which we bring you that on Tuesday. Again, don't forget new episodes drop every single Tuesday on the Eco Right Speaks. So make sure you sign up to subscribe, download, listen at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever it is you get your podcast, Chels. That's right. And we'll see you next week, folks. Until then, we will see you then. Congratulations, Chels. Thanks, Bryce. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.